Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the From Starving to Savvy podcast for independent artists. Here, we share stories from artists, arts administrators, and other professionals working at the intersection of art and technology. Together, we work to interrogate the landscape of the arts industry and attempt to inject a refreshed sense of optimism to unravel the narrative of the starving artist. From Starving to Savvy is funded and produced by Last Draft Incorporated, a story company that specializes in online branding and expression for artists, entrepreneurs, and professionals with personality. I'm your host, Renee Coughlin, and you're listening to From Starving to Savvy. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of From Starving to Savvy. Today, I am here with two very lovely human beings who are the co-founders of Side Door Access. For those of you who don't know much about Side Door, that's all right. You are in the right place because we will be diving into that very soon. And first, I'd like to introduce you to our guests, the co-founders of Side Door, Laura Simpson and Dan Mangan. It is so great to have you both here. Thank you for not only creating this marvelous platform for independent artists, but for also taking time out of your very busy schedules to be here with us today and share more information about it. So I wanted to start by asking you both to introduce yourselves in kind of a special way. So you work at the intersection of art and technology, and we thought it would be fun to kind of ask you to give us an introduction that you might give to a group of artists, as well as to a group of technologists or other professionals working in the tech industry. Yeah, definitely two different introductions. (laughs) <laughs> I think you should go, Dan. You go first. I'm Dan Mangan. I first cut my teeth spending a decade and a half touring around the world. I put out five records and were a songwriter and recording artist and um, have had the honor of playing sweaty, dinge hole basement clubs uh, and also have performed for British royalty and at massive festivals. And I've kind of run the gamut of a lot of different artistic experiences. I've scored DV and film feature films. And then somewhere along the line realized that there was this massive gap in the performing world and side door has been a passion project turned double full-time job. I'm a co-founder of side door with my partner, Laura Simpson, and it's, just been one crazy whirlwind after another the last couple of years and we have found ourselves um in the as some would say the elbow of the hockey stick as a young startup uh just starting to grow was that last part the technology introduction yeah <laughs> focus on the arts yeah. <laughs> that's great thanks dan and uh how about for you laura how might that introduction go for you okay so if i was introducing myself to artists like i present myself as like a music fan first and foremost you know i was the kid who was hanging around in all the clubs and trying to fight for my friends bands when they weren't getting paid enough and that sort of thing um and then actually my first gig in the music industry was as a live music photographer and uh and then i was a journalist i was writing articles you know, doing reviews of people like Slayer and um, I don't know who else, Busta Rhymes, when they passed through town. Uh, and then I was a, actually, I became a full-time journalist and not doing music things. And then that was sort of a, like a left turn for seven years. And then I came back and worked 
at a music nonprofit for seven years. And largely what I did there was work with artists on the business side of things. So that meant helping them figure out how to make the business side work. Um, and that included exporting into international markets and running a fund that basically helped, you know, they, in Canada, of course, we have great funding programs. And so I ran a funding program for that. Um, and then on the technology side, you know, I am the CEO and co-founder of a tech startup and we are in the entertainment space. And that means that we've looked at how people access both as audience members and as creators of shows and how that process has been littered with gatekeepers every step of the way mm -hmm. and how I myself as someone who's been hosting shows in my own house for years just saw that it was something that anyone could do and anyone could attend and should be able to attend. And so Side Doors problem to solve in the tech industry is giving access to anyone to create shows anytime, anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I will say from a personal perspective, you know, I think mission accomplished by both of you with this platform. I truly can't say enough awesome things about it. Uh, I am part of a band that was able to start using Side Door as a means to start touring much more than we ever had. And, you know, we're still quite new and we don't have a large amount of money behind us. So as emerging and independent artists, you know, Side Door has made that really possible for us to actually make a living playing music and touring outside of our city. And it's really quite remarkable what that has actually been able to do for us. I can't say enough nice things about it. But for those listeners who are kind of just hearing about Side Door, Dan, I'm wondering if you can kind of take us back to the early days of when it started and, and share a little bit about the evolution of the company. Totally. Um, well, I'll, I'll rewind way back to like 2006. And um, I had been begging this venue in Calgary for months to let me come and play called the Ironwood. And finally they did. And so I went and was on a tour and I drove to Calgary and uh, there was four people there, of course, because nobody in Calgary knew who I was and I didn't even have any friends or family there or anything. And um, so, you know, didn't make any money, lost money on the day. It was still fun because you're playing music, but it was just like, felt like I was spinning my tires and wasn't getting anywhere. And then about six or so months later, I got invited back via a friend that I'd made named Laurie Matheson in Calgary to come and play at this guy Doug's backyard. And he was having a party and he did this a couple times a year. He was having musicians, you know, and he passed the hat and, you know, people threw him money and, you know, made like $700 playing this guy's backyard. And none of these people had come for me. They just came for Doug because they were his friend, but we had the best night ever, you know, it was amazing and sold a bunch of CDs and it was like, wow, this is like existential gain, you know, uh, to be here right now. And I've just made a bunch of money and I, sort of at that time realized like, whoa, there's something here. Like, it's not the ironwood that I need, it's Doug. And um, especially in those early days, if you don't have the machine of the industry on your side, like it's really hard to find a spark that you can fan into a flame. And so Doug was my spark in Calgary. And that's like the beginning of my audience in Calgary was Doug. Um, so I sort of said, I want to find a Doug in every city. That was sort of like my in internal motto. So fast forward many, many years, and I had a little fledgling record label, and I had signed all these bands. None of them had um, booking agents, and so they were, I was having, I was essentially helping them book their tours, and book their, and it was just like, oh, this is really hard, and you're working like crazy to get them into a club where they're going to get paid $50 to play to no one. And so I just put up a thing online. I said, hey, 
you know, I'm looking for house concert people, anyone who's interested in doing this. And the response was crazy. Like within a couple of days, I had like a hundred people write in on a form feed. And um, I just had like a spreadsheet essentially. And I was just one off, you know, connecting this person with this house. And, um, and it was very hodgepodge and it wasn't very successful, but it did lead me to meet Laura who um, had been, you know, hosting exceptionally successful house concert series out of her home. Um, she had like a mailing list. She had recurring people who were just buying tickets to every show she was doing. Didn't matter who she booked because they trusted her. Um, and we had some mutual friends. And immediately Laura and I realized the same gap in the industry that like nine, you know, 97% of touring bands are not represented by an agent and have a really hard time finding gigs. So, you know, what if they were just empowered to find on a one-on-one -on -one basis all of the places they wanted to go? So we started uh, in, incorporated in 2017, launched in 2019. Um, had a great year, 2,500 artists, uh, about 900 venues in North America, uh, booked about 700 shows through the platform. Very successful, very fun, very exciting. We raised money um, and, you know, we're sort of, neither of us are, seasoned tech entrepreneurs, but we know the crap out of this marketplace. So it made sense that like we could approach it with some fresh life and then COVID comes. And so, you know, everything kind of twists and turns um, at that point. And maybe I'll pass it off to Laura for her perspective on how this company began. Maybe it's different than mine, but. Uh, yeah, I can even layer in, you know, sort of picking up a, a few threads that that Dan laid down and you know I was always interested in the technological advantages of making things more efficient with you know I put we had a paper-based funding program when I started and I, and I put it online using free software and I was always really interested in how to make things more accessible more easy more fair and transparent using technology and so those are principles that we've upheld with with side door and you know Dan mentioned we incorporated in 2017 and then we launched in 2019. I mean, we had booked many shows in that period, that two-year period, but the technology piece where we both do not come from the technology side of things, we manually did functions until it looked like it was a repeatable process that could be put into code. Um, and then we gradually, with a developer we hired in 2018, created that code, starting with the payment system, actually, that was essentially allowing anyone to sign up and with a Stripe Connect account and, and the ticket revenue would be held in their account and, and be, you know, there according to the split that they had created with someone and then paid out upon the completion of the show. And so for us, that was a fundamental core piece when we started, which was how to fairly negotiate and then distribute money because in our view, it just hadn't been done right for a long time. Um, so that piece actually um, was the foundation and then the rest, the matchmaking of artists and hosts and just distilling the booking process down and then communication with audience and helping the audience show up with, you know, the best preparation they could just to have a great time. All of that, um, you know, led us to a 2.0 release in 2020, beginning of 2020. And when COVID-19 hit, and we had never done an online show. This was all in-person shows all around North America. And we had done, you know, um, dozens of cancellations and, and that was heartbreaking. But, you know, what we realized is that the, the principles we had in place of transparency, fairness, all of that kind of part of the platform was applicable to online shows. And so, you know, 
Dan essentially, you know, and we we had been using Zoom like we're we're doing right now because we're across the country from one another. So we were very familiar with using this platform. And so Dan threw up a show within a week of canceling his own full-time full yeah, Canadian sold out tour and um, you know, did a show online. And it was we didn't know what to expect. And I just remember calling him afterwards and and like with tears in my eyes, because what I had experienced was something that felt like the kind of community that we create in our in-person shows. And that was because you could see the audience, the audience knew they were being seen. They could see other people in the audience. There was a sense of like, I'm here with you at this show together. Um, And it's not sort of playing into the void. And that was especially needed during this time. And so we just have sandboxed that over and over and over in the past three months. And now I think, Dan, you re- we just put up, we're on nearly 200 shows that we've done since March 21st. So um, it's incredible. And what we've now realized is that all the elements are still there. We still have presenters, host venues, festivals, looking for ways to stay in the game here and partner with artists who are creating shows online. And so we can be the facilitator still in those aspects. Um, still cobbling some things together manually but you know the fundamentals are still there Mm -hmm. and laura you know you mentioned the differences between experiencing this type of online show versus something that's live and i remember when the covid restrictions were just kind of settling in on everyone dan you were actually part of a panel discussion that Folk Alliance International was doing. And I remember you sharing a story about an experience that Danny Michelle had while doing one of these online side door shows in Zoom. And the fact that you could see audience members so closely, there was actually a man who pulled out his guitar and at one point of the song took a guitar solo. And Danny was able to leave that space because he saw what was going on for this fan, this audience member, and created that space for him to join in. And, you know, I find it so interesting because nowhere in this kind of pre-COVID world had I ever seen an opportunity for a fan to join in like that. And I just keep thinking, you know, if I was that audience member and somebody who I loved was on stage playing music, how cool that would be to be able to join in and and jam with that person. And so it does bring up the question of, you know, will this be able to continue? Will this these online shows be something that exists even when we are able to gather in real life again and share in that live person-to-person, same space, same physical space, musical experience together? Will Sidor keep offering these online shows? I think it's it's going to be here forever. Um, it's a new behavior, right? Like I... Pre-COVID, I, I never would have invested in like a soft light box from my studio so I can be front lit. Um, I never would have bought a 200 foot Ethernet cable so I can be hardwired in my studio. Um, I've invested in this medium now and I think most artists are beginning to if they haven't already. Um, and also audiences have invested in this medium. You know, people are Chromecasting the show to their TV. They're figuring out how to wire it to their stereo so that they can watch a show in like a more hi-fi thing. Um, and they're becoming much more normalized to the experience. At first, it was like this big novelty. And now people are like, oh, yeah, I'm just watching online shows. There are people in Estonia, in India, China, Argentina, who have been waiting for me to come and play those places for a decade. 
I've never toured in any of those places. And they've seen me play now like a handful of times in the last couple of months. And I've talked to them face to face. I've met them on, on during the shows. They've told stories, you know, and, and I think what's really interesting here is to not look at this like a really bad version of a real show, but to look at this like a brand new medium. And you're going to extract from this medium different gains than you would in a real life setting. There's nothing that's going to replace being 10 feet away from a booming kick drum in a big, loud club. And it's just like visceral and there's people around you and that, will, that won't be replaced here. But um, there is something about this medium that is more direct, that is more vulnerable. And if you lean into the connective part of it, the interactive part of it, you know, that you could have a variety show, you could invite a guest in from Taiwan and they could play and there's no setup. They don't have to fly into town. They don't have to get a hotel. Um, you know, it's literally 40, like 20 minutes of their time to do this. And um, so there are interesting ways and people are really leaning into the creative element of this to say, okay, under this format, what can we do that wouldn't be achievable in the regular world? And I think what we're going to see out of COVID is a hybrid model where if you have a capacity, you know, of a club, we can only fill it 20, 30% because of pandemic distancing measures. Well, then you have like an in-person higher price ticket. And then you have a sort of tiered online ticket um, that people can watch from around the world. Or, you know, I think that we're going to see this sort of model. And I think that even right now, there every venue in the world that is having any chance of surviving this pandemic is investing in, you know, installing cameras throughout the venue so that they can have like a turnkey streaming option for from here on out for any show that, that desires it. Um, so I, I, I do think that it's going to stay. Um, it'll change and people will, some people will gravitate to it. Some people prefer this medium to an on to a real show. Not everyone, obviously. Um, it's not going to be for everyone, but it certainly has proven to be a really, really valuable thing for some people. Yeah, I'd add to the access, the accessibility point, like we have access in our name for a reason, which is, you know, when we first started doing in-person shows, there was a real pushback on going to bars for gigs and what that meant late at night. You know, you have to get a babysitter if you have kids, you, you know, it's 19 plus, it's, you know, like a specific kind of experience. And, you know, and if it's in an arena, it's a specific kind of price point, which is also a barrier. And so to me, the most exciting thing about the online format that I think you know, is opening up worlds is I've seen in audiences and not just, you know, different countries represented that would never get to see Dan tour or all these artists in, in person. But as an audience member, you know, I just tuned into a South African band on our platform the other day. They're playing again coming up. And that would I would that would never happen. I would never be able to do that. I mean it's a dream to go to South Africa, but really like to to do that and, and dance along with my family was amazing. And also specifically people who have access problems because of, you know, physical disability. Some people can't be in a club that's very loud. You know, there's, you know, people with autism have a real tough time being in crowded places. And, you know, there's all these barriers for people to experience live entertainment. And I think, again, like what Dan's saying of, you know, the ability for us to deliver performance in online situations opens up that market completely to who, who can enjoy them. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's so powerful when you start to think about it in terms of accessibility and the limitations that have previously existed for people to actually physically go to a venue to experience live music and what this opens up for people. So in in the expansion of the audience and, you know, people who are showing up to watch these shows online, have you noticed a difference in the artists who are showing up to perform as well? I think that the moment lends itself probably more easily to songwriters, which, you know, good for me, not great for some of them. I mean, some bands really thrive behind the veil. Like when they're on stage behind the smoke and mirrors and there's projections on stage and they can kind of dance. And that is the, that is the experience that they deliver. Something that's a little bit more ethereal um, <clears throat> and mysterious, you know, I've never been a mysterious artist. So doing something really direct and just, talking with with audiences and, and you know being myself in front of a camera that's really natural to me but that is really not natural to some people i've said also that this is a good moment for singers not so good a moment for bass players you know um and so i think it's like it is a medium that is favoring some just because it's more easily accessible that said we've had a big uptick of like jazz recently of avant-garde instrumental music um, and I love that. Like, I love that we can foster an ecosystem for that kind of music, whether it's like an ensemble playing in, in a small studio space somewhere, or whether it's a solo person performing from home. Um, that's exciting to me. And I think we're seeing more and more of that on the platform, which is cool. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, we are on a constant mission to like, diversify the artist field on side door to to make sure that like it is not specific to a genre or a look or a, you know an ethnicity the guinea pig co-founder slash artist you know I'm, i often am somebody who sort of um is thrown to the wolves on side door often to be like okay here try this new thing you know dan's gonna do it and then if it works out maybe some other people will do it too which is great but it also sets the tone of like here's a white dude playing a guitar which is like the most classic and like, you know, unfortunately never better represented than in the moment right now in the world. But like, you know, we need, we need a new thing that is the default thing <laughs> that isn't just white dude with guitar because that's been the default thing for a very long time. So, um, you know, we are, we are doing everything that we can to try and reach as wide an audience uh, in and, and as wide a, uh, a sort of field of artistry as possible. And um, that's very much a priority for us. Mm -hmm. And so as you're working towards growing and diversifying and showing that, who are some of the people that you look to for inspiration and motivation along this journey of growth and expansion and change? Um, you know, I have really weird um, heroes in this in this world, and they're probably completely different than Dan. But you know, like both of us uh, running this company in sort of what you would call a mid career. You know, this is not we're not twenty year olds without a family. Like we both have families. You know, we're both we're both coming at it from a experience. I've experienced this problem, and therefore I want to solve this problem kind of perspective. And so my heroes are in and around people who have been, you know, not your typical 
um, people in those roles. So I looked to like the outgoing CEO of Patagonia. I was just reading about her the other day who I followed her for a long time. And, you know, her ability to be a social activist and run a clothing company is amazing to me. And, um, you know, the whole story of Patagonia is, is incredible and the integrity that they've managed to uphold over the years is amazing. Um, you know, Katerina Fake, who's, who was one of the co-founders of um, Flickr and uh, also helped start Etsy, you know, like the, those kinds of people who looked into platforms and understood that they are communities. They are, they are not just, you know, technical technological services, but that you are creating rules for how people function in this online world. And by doing that, you have an opportunity to really set a standard that is maybe perhaps better than we're operating in the, the real world. And so I, I really admire folks like that. And I look to them for leadership in, in how they sort of like grow their companies, which are for-profit companies like ours, but with a great sense of integrity and uh, humility um, in, in, in their role that they play in the larger landscape, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it, when it comes to the tech world, startup world, you know, I share some of those heroes with Laura. I, I think, um, and and these are people that I like. I didn't, I'd, I'd never heard the name Katarina Fake before a few years ago because um, I just this wasn't my scene, you know. Um, and I think that forever, I have sort of, I mean, my favorite band in the world, without question, no hesitation, is Radiohead, and I think that they provide an interesting example of being like a ubiquitous massive arena selling worldwide famous you know entity that is also completely um fused with like intention and like creative resilience and ambition and like re regeneration and um like reinventing it that band has reinvented itself it has never sort of like dipped in integrity. And I think that that's really, really interesting, you know, as a model for any kind of company or organization or artist to strive for is to cast a net that is both wide and deep, you know, that is of integrity and is um, remarkably vital and solid and full of soul and yet has managed to reach an incredible amount of people. And I think that with Side Door, that is, that is our goal. Like we wanna, be, we wanna be huge. We wanna be a billion dollar company. Like we wanna be a company that is as entrenched with the entertainment industry as Airbnb is with the accommodations industry. And yet we have a, a, a philosophical goal of you know, helping to foster a massive, robust, thriving middle class of artistry where people you've never heard of that are totally unfamous could make $100,000 a year, you know, a carpenter's wage doing what they love. So there's sort of like a big vision, but it's also very full of intention. The challenge for us is that if we are able to grow, to, to continue that integrity and that sort of philosophical why the whole journey. Yeah, and I can... I guess really sympathize with that challenge. I think about that a lot, you know, because we don't necessarily have a number of 
positive examples of booming marketplaces that also maintain integrity and do stay true to their philosophical why. And so I'm really inspired by the work that you're doing and I am so hopeful for what Sidedoor can become. And I'm curious, do you see any other challenges with what you're creating here? I think, you know, our daily challenge is largely around when you are trying to do something different, people assume that you're something that already exists. And so defining who you are and what you do to people, um, it's on you, it's on us to be very clear about how we're going to operate you know, with you as an artist, with a venue. Um, and, you know, for us, it's a challenge to be very upfront and clear about those expectations um, in a world where the behaviors are so ingrained for how things work. And that's really what we're trying to fight against is we're trying to say, you know, like we're empowering people rather than dictating to them. We're um, a lot were like fostering curators rather than being the gatekeeper, you know, like there's these sort of changes in the way that we're doing things, but it requires for us, not only the clarity of like, this is who we are and what we do. And, but also the user to understand that and clearly interact back with us. So that's actually in the tech world is called product market fit. And, you know, again, like what Dan was saying, like, these are terms that we didn't know before working in this industry, but in, in reality, what it really is, is that, you know, we're, we're trying to, reinvent a wheel in a way. Um, and I think sometimes the biggest challenge is to actually not just have people buy into it philosophically, but actually practically understand how that's going to work. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of unlearning to do and relearning these kinds of things because for so long we haven't had that control or that autonomy to be able to make these decisions and to be able to go to different cities and tour and be our own gatekeepers and work with communities and build these shows that we want to do and people want to come to and so it's so interesting you're so right I feel like we're really going against the grain to even understand that this is a real opportunity you know that we don't need to dish out a bunch of money to be able to plan these things and work together with venues i get text messages from artists that are sort of like hey you guys are doing some really cool things like can i do that like they're asking permission as if like we're deciding who gets to do it you know like because it is so ingrained in the artist mindset of like someone has to let them do art and i'm like yeah yeah just just go on the website it takes like five minutes, just click a bunch of buttons, type a few things in, upload a picture and boom, like set up a show, you know, but people still feel like they need to ask permission or like work their way through an inside lane or something like that, which is really funny. And the amount of things that I avoid because I assume they're going to ask me for money at the end, mm -hmm. that a service is going to make me pay for something. Yeah. Um, is, is it's really interesting to kind of notice as you're saying Laura how ingrained all of those kind of patterns and assumptions and behaviors they are in all of us it was so key for us up front was deciding like our business model is such that we only make money if artists make money like that is that was crucial because along the way whether I mean there's countless countless examples but there's so many businesses in the music industry that prey on the hopes and dreams of artists and artists by and large are broke. And so 
like when you ask them for like a subscription fee, like, you know, they're, they're working in coffee shops and, and, um, and like you're, you're taking what little money they do have and asking them to give it to you at first. You know, I remember like early on paying like a hundred dollars to Sonic bids so that I could, um, apply to play at a festival. You know what I mean? And like, at the time, I was like, I guess I just got to do this because mm -hmm. there's no other way around it. And I didn't have a hundred bucks like that to me. Like I, I had no money to spare. And I remember how heartbreaking it was when I was like, I'm clicking. Okay, I'm going to pay all this money to apply to play a festival that I know is just going to say no. I know that they're not going to have me because I know that they're just going to pick the ones they wanted to play pick anyway. And no one's going to listen to this. But it's just like you're so desperate for any kind of ethereal affirmation you know like it takes a thousand no's before you get a yes and that just hurts the soul over and over and over again and i did not want to be a pariah like i did not want to be a parasite to the artist class and say like you know we're gonna we're gonna charge you money up front to do something that might not yield any success and so I wanted a business model where our success was totally in tandem with the amount of success that they're achieving. Um, so that the more money they make, the more money we make. And if they make very little money, we make very little money. And that's, that is important. Like we are providing a service that I believe to be essential and interesting and unique and special, but they shouldn't have to like, they shouldn't have to, it shouldn't, it shouldn't hurt to use it. You know? Right. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I really do like that when you're using it, the decisions really are up to the artist. Like I can choose when I'm filling out this thing with a menu to say, you know, if we don't sell this many tickets, then it's really not worth our time and our expenses to get there. And, mm -hmm. and we can't make it work. And that, that decision is up to us and, and whoever's hosting is really great. Um, I, I can't say enough lovely things about both of you. I really, really appreciate the platform the opportunities that it's offered for us as a as an emerging band has been been really great. So thank you both of you for that. Um, I can tell you how affirming it is to hear those words. Thank you. Oh, that's good. I'm so glad. I mean, every single one of them. Uh, I am curious to know. I mean, everything that you've said definitely does this. But are there any other words or pieces of wisdom that you would share with emerging and independent artists that you know, feel a little bit discouraged by the current landscape of this industry? I mean, the cliche thing is like, there's hope, you know, uh, <laughs> like, and um, I think what I would say is um, you have to adapt. And history is never kind to those who chose not to adapt. Um, and this moment might not be ideal. It might not be what you were hoping for or looking for, but there are some beautiful silver linings. Um, and I know from having watched firsthand um, that there has been serious, tangible, existential and spiritual reward from online shows. And you have to do a little bit of work to achieve it. It's not, no one's going to do it for you in the same way that no one's going to tour Canada for you and make you famous, you know, like no one's going to do it all for you. It, you with any artistic pursuit, you have to work really, really hard. 
Um, and so there is work involved. It's not going to be painless, but there is elation on the other side of that mountain and that you can do it. It's there. I've seen it. I've watched dozens and dozens of performers use side door and I get a text message after their first show and they're like, Oh my God, like that was so great. I didn't think it would be great. I thought it would be okay. And it was great. And I feel so seen and heard and, and understood. And like, I, I mean, it's like, it can be like seeing the front row of all of your audiences everywhere. It's like the front row of your Sacramento audience and the front row of your London audience and the front row of your Sydney, Australia audience, but they're all at the same show. And for artists to have this access point to their, to like their base, most dedicated community, it's like really cool. And, um, it can provide some existential respite beyond beyond what you anticipate if you're willing to do a little bit of work. I, I think I would add, you know, my message to artists would be that, you know, you are enough. Um, I think I've so much, so many of the conversations I've had is that there's concern, there's fear around, you know, using this medium um, about putting a hard ticket on an online show has been a huge thing about getting the sound right, about getting the lighting right, about thinking about how it's going to work and dance right. You have to do the work, but it also should be done in, in conjunction with the knowledge that actually you are enough. Like if you have done the work to declare yourself an artist and really work at your craft and, and, and want to share that with the world, um, you know, I think like my service always has been for the artist because I do fundamentally believe in the value of artists and art in this world. And, you know, we're already seeing like school programs cutting art. We're seeing um, how it's the first thing that was shut down and the last thing that will open up in terms of, you know, availability to attend art spaces. And, you know, I think we've also seen through a crisis that art is the thing that gets us through the most and helps us remain connected to each other and, and really display humanity in a way that's necessary to, to cope. And so I, I really just want to so drive home that you are enough to the artist because it is often a barrier of like, I'm not going to be able to live up to whatever expectation is in the head of them before they do this show. So they're comparing themselves to everyone out there, but just do yourself on this format and it will be absolutely enough. And that success isn't tied to scale. You know, you could have a remarkable, beautiful, wonderful show to 25 people online. And if it's interactive and like you're seeing them and they can all see each other, it's like you're hanging out in a room and you might make like, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks, which is great. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, without leaving home. Yeah. I mean, the, this, the ROI on these shows is pretty wild because once you get a little bit of tech set up and you spend a few hours messing around with your sound and your DAW and all that stuff, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't cost me anything to put on another show. I just have to set it up. And then, boom, whoever shows up, shows up. And that's great. And, and it can be a really beautiful experience. And small doesn't mean bad. Small can mean wonderful. Yeah, that's kind of another one of those narratives, I feel like, that we often work against this idea that to be a successful musician means that you're in a stadium with thousands of screaming fans. And uh, we know that that's not 
a current reality for a lot of people and many more people can have a successful music career if you think about this middle class of artistry that you talk about and I think that's so interesting to think about the kind of art that can come from that sphere when people have the ability to tour and and make it and what that does to everyone else well it creates and it creates the most vibrant ecosystem right if the middle class feels like they can confidently take risks without worrying about their career plummeting then we're going to get a far more interesting artist tapestry of of different kinds of art and people are going to go out further on the limb and try interesting things. And then even the people in the arenas, even the people who are like the mainstream grab, their music will get more interesting because the middle class and the middle ground will have tried it and tested it first and and brought those ideas to the sort of star class, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the when it comes to the pop stars, like they're they wanna be cool. They wanna they wanna know what's hip and what's coming up. And so it's it's sort of the the more robust and and sustainable that middle class is the the better uh we have an engine that is going to create and generate new ideas and um that's really exciting you know it it just means that art will will get more interesting and more diverse and more more all over the place Mm -hmm. i totally agree with that laura is there anything else before we wrap up here that you wanted to add Um, You know, one of our mantras in building Side Door is that we've we've done it in conversation with the people who use the platform. Um, So I want to stress that that continues to be the case. Um, When we ask for feedback, we really mean we want your feedback. When we, you know, when we receive reviews, we read them. I I often go out and, and find, you know, UX UI auditors from not Canada to review our our site and just give us a sense of like how we're doing. What does it feel like? What are we missing? Um, You know, we really appreciate that outside eye and the the perspective of the artists of what they're going through because we can get into the weeds quite a bit um, working at it, but um, it always helps to constantly uh, have a conversation with the people who are actually using it to understand what we can be doing better. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I have to tell you, Laura, you are not going to get that kind of criticism from me. Um, it happens to be... You need to be more critical of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll work on that for next time. <laughs> In the meantime, uh, my sincerest thanks to both of you again. All the luck to you both and to the continued success of Side Door. I hope you make your billions. And... <laughs> Which means billions of dollars for artists. Yes, we can all walk around with our money and <laughs> integrity intact. Exactly. <laughs> it was so awesome to meet you both. Thank you so much for being part of this. Yeah, great to meet great. you. Renee, I appreciate it. Likewise, take care. You too, thanks so much. That wraps up this week's episode of From Starving to Savvy. Myself, along with the whole team at Last Draft, extend our most sincere gratitude to each of you for tuning in and giving your ears, your hearts, and your time to learning more about our guests and their unique stories and experiences. Once again, this podcast is brought to you by Last Draft, an ethical, engaging, and human story company with a mission to authentically amplify the stories of those they work with. 
team at Last Draft thrives on real connections, empowering stories, and authentic voices. If you are an artist or entrepreneur looking to start telling your story, Last Draft offers support through evocative written content, exciting virtual events, personal email campaigns, and more. To get in touch with a team member at Last Draft, please visit www.lastdraft.ca. Again, we extend our deepest thanks to each of you for tuning in and hope you'll be back for future episodes.